So when the kingdom of man burns up in judgment, the kingdom of God is going to descend in glory. When the kingdom of man is brought low in destruction, the kingdom of God will stretch out in dominion. When the kingdom of man is humbled in defeat, it is the kingdom of God that will glory in the reality of resurrection. These eternal truths which are being put on display for us in Revelation and all these different symbols and all these different moving pictures we've seen, they are what motivate Christians to endure. The gospel we preach is eternal. The kingdom of man we preach it in is not. God's wrath is eternal. Heaven's rest is eternal. And all of that changes how we view the here and now. And ultimately that's what this passage is about tonight. Last week, the beginning of John 14, we saw heaven. We saw the Lamb standing on Mount Zion with the church triumphant, those who had overcome in the tribulation. In the beginning of chapter 15, we will see heaven again. But in between, there is this warning and this picture of the judgment that is to come. And the weight of that judgment must be considered, certainly by those who do not believe. But remember that Revelation is written primarily to the church, not the world. Therefore, these three angels, in issuing this warning to the world tonight, are also speaking to the suffering church. They are putting the eternal nature of God's word and God's wrath and the rest of the saints on display so that the church will be compelled once again to conquer by enduring to the end, to overcome tribulation by holding fast to the Lamb who stands on Zion. So I will read starting in verse 6, Revelation chapter 14. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead, who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Father, I pray that tonight your truth would be remembered, that I would be forgotten, and that your name would be exalted. Where there are tares among the wheat, where there are unbelievers, God, sitting amongst the believers in the church, don't let them be fooled. I pray the truth of the word would open their eyes to 
their need for the gospel tonight. For those that believe God, I pray that we would be reminded again that apart from you, we can do nothing. And that our only hope is to cling to you, Jesus, that you will bring to completion the good work you've begun. And so use your word, God, to uh, continue to form and shape us into the people you want us to be. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we have three angels in this passage tonight. Uh, Angels often serve as messengers in Revelation and in the Bible, so we shouldn't be surprised to see them flying uh, over the earth with messages here. The angels come with a message for the people who dwell on the earth. And the messages that we get from these angels, I don't think they're meant to be separate messages. we're going to deal with them separately just for uh, you know, being able to move through the text in an organized way, but I think that these three uh, proclamations from the angels are meant to be listened to all together, to be understood all together. One collective warning to the earth, one uh, collective message that should have a motivating effect to the church. The first angel we see flying directly overhead, John says. That's John's way of saying he's in the sky, like the sky you look at if you walk out there right now, okay? And in chapter 14, at the beginning, he looks up and he sees the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. That's an incredible vision. Now, though, he is looking a little lower to just kind of the normal firmament, right? The normal sky, and he sees this angel flying overhead in this vision. And the angel is proclaiming an eternal gospel to the rebellious people that are dwelling on the earth. John, of course, is referring here to the only gospel. What other gospel is there? What other gospel is eternal in its nature, stretching from everlasting to everlasting? He is talking about the full counsel of God's goodness and man's sin and Christ's death and resurrection. He's talking about the response of repentance and faith that is required. And so point number one tonight, if you're taking notes, the gospel is eternal. We see this in verses six and seven. The gospel is eternal. This is what sets the word of God apart, among other things, from everyone else who's ever spoken. The message that we go out and we preach to the world, the message that the angel is proclaiming here, it's not something that we believe came to us from the word of man. It's something that we believe has been given to us from the very heart and mouth of God. It is truth given to us from eternity past, and it will be true for endless ages in eternity future. There's never been a time in which the gospel wasn't true, and there never will be a time in which it's not true. It's not just an old, old story. It's an ageless story. It's an eternal story. And you can see that this eternal gospel is preached globally by the angel, right? To every nation, tribe, and language, and people. It's being preached to all of the rebellious people of the earth. Because remember, those who dwell on the earth, that is a phrase that indicates unbelievers, right? Not believers in Revelation, And so this eternal gospel is preached to unbelievers from all nations. 
We don't preach to select people. We preach to everybody. We issue the warning of the wrath of God, the warning of of judgment, and, of course, the great good news of His Son's salvation to all unrepentant people in the world, in every nation, tribe, uh, every language-speaking people. We do not discriminate. We take the Gospel to everyone, breaking down language barriers, culture barriers, Because this is the eternal truth of God, and it demands a response from every soul in those nations, therefore, we go and we tell the way that Jesus told us to. And the way that those souls must respond to the eternal gospel that's being proclaimed by the angel here, it's shown in the angel's words. In verse 7, he says with a loud voice, to fear God and to give Him glory. There's this warning that judgment is on the way, and there is... An exhortation to worship the Creator. Fear God, give Him glory, worship the Creator. It's a very broad overview of how everyone must respond to the reality of our sin and the gift of God's Son to forgive us of our sin. We must repent. We must repent of sin and become faithful worshipers. We need a reversal of the horrible scene in Romans 1 that I read from a few weeks ago. Romans 1 verse 19 says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, talking about you know, people, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And this is what we see happening all around us. People claim to be wise. They stop worshiping the Creator. They start worshiping the things that He has made. They trade in the worship of Him for the worship of stuff. And yet they claim to be wise, even though they're putting their hope and their safety in physical things. The angel is calling on the nations to repent of this. In chapter 14, verse 7. Don't worship the creation. Worship Him who made heaven and earth. The One who made the sea and the springs of water. Don't worship the creation. Worship the Creator. Don't attribute the weight of glory to things that are not glorious. Give your Creator the glory that He deserves. For anything in this world that has true glory in it has derived it from Him. But in order to worship the Creator in this way, we first must turn to Him. And that is what the call to fear God here is all about. It is a call to repent of a life in which you sin and you don't fear God. Many people live lives like this, lives of unrepentant sin, and they are fearless before God. They disregard His rules. They feel they are above them. They feel like they don't have to obey His rules. Even though God has made His invisible attributes clearly perceivable in nature, right? His divinity is is evident everywhere that you look. Ever since He said, let there be light, this has been the case. Despite that, there are people who say, He does not matter. I will do what I want. And the argument Paul makes in Romans 1 is that people cast off this clear perception of His existence. They cast off this idea that, hey, there's an earth, there's got to be an earth maker, so they can continue in sin. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
We must repent. We must repent and stop living in this way. And when we do that, what we're doing is we're saying to God, God, I will not keep disagreeing with you about sin. I will fear you. I will stop acting like your opinion does not matter. I will agree with you that your standard is the standard for the world. And I turn away from fearlessly sinning against you. And I turn to you fearing you reverently, wanting to sin against you no more. Because I recognize that you are holy and that you are right. And Jesus will never be your Lord until you fear him in that way. Until you have reverence for him that drives you to count him to be right. The true and reverent fear of God in the human heart will always lead to this repentance. It will always lead you to say with David, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And if we truly repent of our sin, we will spend our days worshiping God and giving Him the glory. A life of repentance leads to a life of praise. I think about Thomas Goodwin, who was a preacher in the 1600s, and he was a preacher early on in his ministry just so he could get applause. Like, he openly admitted that. He was like, I took the pulpit to show everybody how smart I was, to get the attaboys, to get the pats on the back. And one day Goodwin sat in a funeral and he heard a sermon from another pastor who was not preaching for attaboys and he realized, I don't fear God the way that I should. And for seven years he's just ripped himself apart about this fact that he didn't fear God. And he had no peace. And he met this man named Richard Sibbs who was a preaching powerhouse himself. And Sibs grabbed Goodwin and he said, young man, if you would ever do good, you must preach the gospel and the free grace of God in Christ Jesus. Meaning, you gotta stop looking inward and beating yourself up and ripping yourself up. That's not what people who fear God do. People who fear God recognize they can't fix their problems. They look outward. They look to the grace of Jesus and they say, it's him and it's him alone. It's the only thing that can save me. He's the only one who can save me. And so Thomas Goodwin, for the rest of his life, became consumed by this, obsessed with this idea that you have to look reverently to Jesus in worship. And he wrote two classic works on the matter. Christ Set Forth, a book how, about how, how Jesus from heaven will fill the sails of your faith with wind. And then a book called The Heart of Christ in Heaven Towards Sinners. About how Jesus just loves you. He sits in heaven and loves you. And his whole life became this mission just to get people to look to Jesus, to join him in the praise of Christ in heaven. And then one day, when Goodwin died, he said, Christ cannot love me better than he doth, and I think I cannot love him better than I do. That's the end result of a life that believes the eternal gospel turns from sin, and dedicates itself to reverently and fearfully look to Christ in worship. It's similar to what we see from old man Solomon in Ecclesiastes 12. I, I firmly believe Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes at the end of his life after he had repented of all his wild ways. And he says in Ecclesiastes 12 verse 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. 
What Solomon says there, it's the same sermon being preached by the angel that flies overhead. There is no peace that's going to matter at the end of your life. There's no peace that's going to matter on the day of your death if you don't have peace with God. If you don't fear God and worship God and have peace with God, man, you can be at peace with your family. You can be at peace with the job that you chose to spend your days on. You could be at peace with the manner of death that has come upon you. But if you do not have peace that you love God and that He loves you, you have nothing. Your soul's in peril. And there's no peace for the soul that's in peril. And so the angel, warning that judgment and death are near, calls on the earth to repent. A second warning we see here regards Babylon. In 14 verse 8, another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. We got a new character on the scene in the midst of the fourth cycle. That's what's going on here. We're in the fourth of seven cycles that show us uh, the history of the world from all these different perspectives. And we got a new character here, Babylon. She's not going to be a stranger. We'll see her again. When we get to the bull judgments being poured out on the earth, it will be bad for Babylon. Babylon's going to come tumbling down. Revelation 17 verse 1 says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. That's Babylon. We know it's Babylon because in 14.8 we're told that Babylon makes the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And when you get to 17.1 and 2, they are drunk on that sexual immorality. In 17.2, this great prostitute that we meet... Babylon, as we know uh, her in 14 verse 8, well, she's got a, a bad end coming her way. In 18 verse 1 it says, After this I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory, and he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. So in chapter 17 through 19, Babylon's coming down. And yet here in chapter 14, the angel cries out, fallen, fallen, like it's already done. And that is because God will judge Babylon, which means Babylon is as good as judged. So, if you're hanging out in Babylon thinking it's a good old time, like Babylon, feels great. Lots of pleasure in Babylon, lots of satisfaction in Babylon, lots of entertainment in Babylon. Well, you better get out from the walls before it collapses on you. That's what the angel's warning here. The angel's message echoes that of Isaiah in Isaiah 21. And behold, here come riders, horsemen in pairs, and he answered, Fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all the carved images of her gods he has shattered to the ground. In John's revelation, Babylon, I would argue, is not a literal city, which shouldn't be a surprise to you if you've been tracking with us this whole time, right? Instead, it's symbolic, it's representative of the world system that is opposed to God. It is the foil to Zion from last week. Zion is the new Jerusalem. It's the capital city of God coming out of heaven, a bride adorned for her husband. 
Babylon is the capital city of the kingdom of man. It is the Antichrist stronghold opposing everything that the Lord says is good on the earth. It's not any one city, it's not any one institution, any one person, any one movement in history. It's representative of any sort of acute, fierce, intense opposition to God in this world. And Babylon's the right choice for that symbol. It's the right choice to to symbolize the evil that opposes God in the world because it has long been an enemy to the design of God. All the way back to Genesis 11 where we meet Babel for the first time. After the flood, God reissues that image-bearer command to multiply, to fill the earth. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But the people of the earth disobey God. In Genesis 11, verse 3, they say to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they sa- then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. I'll confess to you, I remember hearing this story as an unbelieving little kid. Because I didn't grow up in church. But I heard this story. And I remember thinking, man, what's the big deal? Like, what's God so upset about? They built a building. That's what people do. Like, go to a city. There's buildings. There's really tall buildings. And so I used to think, what's the big deal? But now with spiritual eyes, we see what the big deal is, right? There's a direct command from God. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. They disobey that command with the end goal of making a name for themselves. It's a direct act of prideful opposition to God. No, we're not going to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and make your name great as those who represent you here. We're going to build a tower for ourselves. And then in 586 B.C., that same spirit of Babel exists in the Babylonians, the nation that comes and carries Judah off into captivity. Psalm 137 captures the the sadness that Israel felt as they lived in exile in Babylon. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, meaning they're not going to play their instruments of praise. For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? The Babylonians came into the promised land and they, got, they, they carried God's people away. But it's not like Lord, uh, the Lord God was sitting in heaven and he was like, oh no, oh no, I didn't move my pawns. The rooks of the Babylonians and the bishops of the Babylonians, they've come in and stolen the queen. No, this was God's doing. He was disciplining his children. They had been rebellious against him they had been brutes toward him they had been heartless in their their religion that they offered up to him and so he brought in the babylonians to discipline them he says to them through habakkuk in chapter 1 verse 5 look among the nations and see wonder and be astounded for i'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told But it's not a good work, not from the perspective of judah for behold i'm raising up the chaldeans that's babylon that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. 
just because God is using the Babylonians in this way for his purposes, it doesn't mean that they weren't making real choices to rebel against him and harm his people, though. And God will judge them for that at the hands of other violent nations. He says later on through Habakkuk, because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. So you can see then why in Revelation, Babylon becomes this picture for the world system that opposes God. You ask where it's at? It's anywhere you see rabid opposition against the throne of heaven. Babylon speaks to us through podcasts, through our televisions, through politicians, through professors, through movies, through media, and the consistent message is the same as it was in Genesis 11. Go and make a name for yourself. That's the Sermon of Babylon. That is the ethic of Babylon. Oppose God that your name may be great, that you can get what you want, so you can feel how you want to feel and do what you want to do. In the book of James, he captures the spirit of Babylon when he says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. If you are friendly with the world, you're friendly with Babylon. And if you're friendly with Babylon, you're opposing God for the sake of your name, along with all the other rebels that are doing the same. And at the end of the day, this is spiritual adultery. That's why the language is sexual in verse 8. It's likely that the angel is not referring to actual sexual immorality, though we know actual sexual immorality is a big part of the message of Babylon, but it's bigger than that. It's about spiritual infidelity. The sexual immorality you see in physical adultery, it's a picture of what we do to God in our spiritual adultery. To make friendship with the world is to step out on God like a wife stepping out on her husband. And Babylon has opened up the mouths of those in the nations and poured her idolatrous wine of spiritual adultery down their throats. And we see the results all around us. People are casting off the restraints that God has put in place in the name of the Almighty Self. The basic institution of the family has been torn down to the point that it's considered oppressive. To even say that it's ideal for a home to have a biological man and a biological woman rearing children together. Babylon says the entire idea of the nuclear family is a human construct and it's wrong for you to say it's the design of God and the ideal for humanity. The institution of the church is laughed at now. We come saying we have the authority to preach the gospel in every sphere of the earth because the Bible gives it to us and they just laugh at the Bible. They mock the very word of God. And they say that it is a standard not to be taken seriously. They ignore the witness of the church that speaks to the truth of the word and that calls on people to repent. Even the institution of the civil magistrate, the government, is under threat. In the last few years, we have seen a growing lack of honor for authority in the Western world through the efforts to defund the police and take violent action against the state. The sermon of the second angel is the one that says, don't fall for the message of Babylon, which tells you to cast off this restraint because Babylon itself is fallen. Don't listen to the prophets of Babylon. 
The fate of Babylon is sealed. It's the fallen capital city of a fallen kingdom. Its prophets speak as if it will never fall, as if it's eternal, but it's not. Which is our second point. Babylon is not eternal. Do not put your hope in the world. Don't put your hope in its sermons and songs and its politicians and their promises and its ethics and morality. It's a house of cards. It's all going to come tumbling and and crumbling down. And frankly, the sealed fate of Babylon is exposed in the faultiness of its message. When Babylon says to us the nuclear family is a social construct, it's evil, the question is, by what standard? When Babylon says the church is meaningless, organized religion is evil, by what standard? What's evil? Don't submit to government. The government's evil. By what standard? The only standard they have is the standard of self, the standard of what makes you feel good. That's not a standard. That's a desire. Our worldview and our belief system is built on the ultimate, objective standard of God's word. Babylon's is built on the subjective, changing standard of human opinion, which is driven by insatiable human pleasure. It's not an eternal gospel they preach. There's no eternal truth. Babylon's not an eternal city. Its future is as tenuous as its morality. It's all going to fall. Get out if you're not out already. If you do not get out, the results are devastating. And this is what we see in verses 9-11. through 11. We see a vivid and grave description of both internal and external suffering that awaits all those who refuse to heed the warnings of the angel regarding the gospel in Babylon. In verses 9-11, through 11, we see one of the most vivid pictures of hell that we get in the entire Bible. And it's eternal. And that is our third point tonight. Hell is eternal. Third angel warns anybody who would ignore the warnings of his two predecessors, who would take the mark of the beast, who would go along with the ways of the world, who would reject the gospel of Christ, they'll suffer eternal punishment. An inside-out Suffering that is hard to even comprehend with our little human minds. You see the internal nature of the suffering of hell in verse 10. The sinner will also drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. It's the second cup we've seen in this passage. The first cup was the wine of the passion of Babylon's sexual immorality. She made all the nations drink. The second cup is a reminder to us of what Jesus did for us at Calvary. Because everything that I read about hell in this text, I deserve it. I deserve it. I'm a wretch. I was born opposed to God, hating God. Anything good I did in my life before Jesus got a hold of my heart, before His Spirit regenerated it, only happened because of the common grace of God. There was nothing good in me. I deserve to drink the wine of God's wrath down to the dregs, every drop for all of eternity. I broke the eternal law of an eternal God, and Michael Howard's crimes demand eternal punishment. Hell is fair. If God will remain a good judge of sin, it's necessary. This is why He created it. 
For the church, we understand though that Jesus died in our place and He took our punishment. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. We understand that Jesus took this cup of the wine of the wrath of God and He drank it. Instead of drinking, of you drinking your cup, He took it. He said, I'll, I'll drink this cup. They will not drink a drop of this judgment. And that is what He did for you and me at the rugged table of the cross as He poured out His covenant sealing blood. But for anyone who would reject that gift of God's precious sacrificial Son, they will drink the cup on their own forever. Alone, they will, fare the, they, they will bear the full brunt of their sin. The drinking of the wrath tells us that God's punishment of sin will not just be external, it will be internal. It could refer to um, physical pain that is eternal, but I also think that it's telling us that the suffering that will be endured in hell is not just physical, it is also emotional. It would be a place of emotional terror, a place where guilt reigns and shame is rife and disappointment is bearing down and bitterness is present and unforgiveness is boiling and, and hate and fury are there. All of it just festering in the soul for eternity. And that's not all we see from this text. The suffering is physical. In verse 10, there is this description of the physical torment of fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. The fact that Jesus is present shows His authority to judge. He's presiding over the justice. Verse 11 says the smoke of the torment goes up forever and ever. That shows the eternal nature of this suffering. The angels says here, there's, there's no rest day or night. No rest. Eternal exhaustion from the work of suffering for rebelling against God. A.W. Tozer commenting on this says, hell will be seen to be hell all the way through. Jesus warned us of this. He says, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Matthew 13, the Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus spoke the reality of hell far more than He talked to his disciples about the reality of heaven. And yet C.S. Lewis, brilliant C.S. Lewis said there's no doctrine that he would have wanted to remove from Christianity as much as hell. He wanted to. He wanted it out. But he admitted he couldn't because Scripture taught it so clearly. And specifically because Jesus talked so much about it. I would not be surprised if you feel the same way as as our brother C.S. Lewis did, because I think we react to the concept of hell um, in a very human nature, in, or a very human manner. We go, you know, it just seems unfair to us. Forever seems like too long. The sin doesn't seem that bad. 
But what that exposes is us not understanding how good God is, how holy He is, how horrible our sin is. If, if we truly understood His goodness, if we saw the fullness of His holiness on display and we saw the true depths of our, defense, uh, of our offense against Him, we would have no defense. In fact, we would not question the severity of hell. If we could see the fullness of his goodness and the full extremes of our depravity, would we might even think hell is merciful. See, the punishment of hell is actually a commentary on the significance of God, the stature of him, the prominence of him, the preeminence of him. The first angel has been clear on what repentance must look like from those who dwell on the earth. Fear God. Give Him the glory. Hell is the consequence for refusal to heed those words. Hell is the end road, or the end of the road, that is marked with constant rebellion against God's will and God's way. And I believe the reason that people think that hell is unfair is they just don't understand how important God is. If they did, then they would see that when you attempt to thieve His glory from Him, steal it from Him, you're committing the greatest act of treason you could ever commit, for this is the One who brought you into existence, who made you, who has given you life and breath. He's been merciful to you to not kill you for your sin up to this point, and He is so loving that He gave His Son to die for you so that you could be reconciled to Him and glorify Him forever, but ultimately you look at Him and you say, not good enough. I'm more important. And I will get the glory and I will call the shots. Some people tell God they can, that He can have the leftovers. Some people tell Him to shut His mouth and never speak again. And they give Him nothing. But at the end of the day, anything less than a full surrender is full treason. You must repent of your sin. You must trust in the Son who has died for your treason, who has drank the cup or you will be confronted with the significance of God in hell. I'm going to close up with our final point, but before I do, I just want you to see how following the dragon and the beast in Babylon does not pay. People think it does, and the here and now man, taking the mark of the beast, going along with the ways of the world, joining in on all the the rainbow marketing we're going to see in the next month and, and talking like the world talks and making the same jokes they make and watching everything they watch and listening to everything they listen to and just going along with all those who are walking on the, the broad way that leads to destruction. You might think that pays because it feels good and it's easy now, but I'm telling you, it does not. This life is a mist and it is a vapor. And the collective message of these three angels is reject Babylon, it's fallen, reject the dragon and his beast, otherwise you're going to end up in hell with them. Fear God, give Him the glory, worship Him, because the hour of judgment draws near. It's the message of the angels. Heed it. Heed it, because what you do with the eternal gospel will determine whether your soul carries on an eternal life or an eternal death. Now let's close up tonight by talking about eternal life. I need it. I think you need it. I think that the Spirit of the Lord knew that whoever would read this would need it because He follows up 
right after this very vivid picture of hell with this call to persevere. We see it in verses 12 and 13. I'll read it since it's been a little bit of time since I did. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. This call that you see here in verses uh, in verse 12 in particular, the call for endurance, is very much like the call we saw at the end of chapter 13, or in the middle of chapter 13, verse 10. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Remember that in the face of the first beast, which represents any evil government that tries to persecute the church in the church age, in the face of that first beast, your attitude needs to be, if I, if I proclaim and I go to prison, I proclaim and I go to prison. If I do the right thing and I die, I do the right thing and I die. I endure to the end. I conquer in Christ. I hold on in the face of these beasts. I hold on in the face of Babylon because Jesus is greater and in him I overcome. Now we get another call to endure on the heels of these messages from the angels. And what it shows us is while the warnings of the angels certainly are meant to compel people from the earth to repent, the warnings regarding judgment and regarding hell and Babylon are also to be a motivation for us as believers to hold on and endure. To not give up and to not give in and to not take the mark. To demonstrate the love that we have for Jesus and obedience to Jesus all the way to the end because that's what believers do. They show that they are the lambs by holding on to the lamb to the end. Not because they're so strong they can hold on, but because as Paul says in Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. If he's truly started a saving work in you, he's not going to stop. He's going to fix it. He's going to bring it all the way to the day of completion until you are glorified. And the end of the endurance of the saints is the opposite of the end of rebellion for the people of the earth. Rebellion ends in eternal hell, but endurance ends in eternal rest. And that's why this voice from heaven, which I think it's the Father's voice, I think this is the Lord speaking. Blessed are the dead who died in the Lord from now on. And then I think you have the Spirit of God calling back to the Father, saying, blessed indeed that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. And and I just love that. I love the the persons of the triune Godhead rejoicing together and, and saying amen together over the promises that God has made to us as as His people. Blessed are the dead in Christ because the deeds that they have done for Jesus in this life are going to follow them into glory and those deeds will be their crown and their reward. And while it is their deeds that they did for the Lord that will follow them, it is rest that awaits them. No more labor. No more failing the law. No more confessing sin. No more praying and thinking about something else and then going, God, I'm sorry. No more holding on in a sin-sick world. No more pain. No more tears. All that's going to be wiped away in the new heaven and the new earth. The place where the church triumphant will live out her eternity under the ruling, loving gaze of Jesus. And you say, well, what's going to be there? Just love 
It's just going to be love. It's going to be God's love for us. It's going to be our love for Him. It's the opposite of hell. Jonathan Edwards taught that heaven itself is just a rest of love. He says, And this renders heaven a world of love, for God is the fountain of love, as the sun is the fountain of light. And therefore the glorious presence of God in heaven fills heaven with love. As the sun placed in the midst of of the hemisphere in a clear day fills the world with light. Edward sees heaven as a world that's just love. God's the fountain of love in heaven like the sun pours out light on the earth. And His presence will spread out over all of the new earth and the light of love will come with it as far as the eye can see and beyond. And then Edwards goes on to explain that when you were saved, that God took a little seed of love and He planted it in your heart when He regenerated you. And that that seed's been growing and when you die and you get to heaven, it is going to take full bloom. He says, all shall stand about the glory of God. Can, Can you wait for that? We stand about the glory of God. I'm standing about you right now. That's what he means, okay? I'm standing about you, right? I'm standing next to you. We're going to stand about His glory, the fountain of love, as it were, opening their bosoms to be filled with those effusions of love which are poured forth from thence. As the flowers on the earth in a pleasant spring day open their bosoms to the sun to be filled with His warmth and light and to flourish in beauty and fragrancy by His rays. Listen to this. Every saint is a flower in the garden of God. And holy love is the fragrancy and sweet odor which they all send forth and with which they fill that paradise. Heaven will just be an eternity of us receiving the light and the warmth of the love of God and then in, in the presence of His charity, we will just blossom in love for Him. Day after day, it will just grow and it will grow and it will grow and my love for God's not going to stop growing. It's going to be boundless and limitless in heaven. That is a far cry from the smoke and the torment of eternal hell. That's a loveless place with no rest, but heaven will be the opposite. It will be a country of glory, a country of love with nothing but rest. Even as we work and we serve the Lord there, it will be a labor of loving rest for the saints of God. Next time we get together in Revelation, you're going to see uh, the sickle swing. The grapes will be harvested and thrown into the winepress of the wrath of God. It's deadly stuff. Heed the message tonight. Judgment's near. Babylon has fallen. Hell is eternal. Heaven's also eternal. And you want to be there in that garden of love. Repent. Fear God. Give Him the glory. And begin to love Him now. And then hold on to Him to the end. I'm going to close us in prayer here in just a moment. Uh, Before I do, on your way out tonight, there are gospel tracks that are blue uh, on the table in the back, and they look like this. It says, two ways to live. The message, the eternal gospel that the first angel is proclaiming and that the other angels elaborate on is in this booklet, okay? It is the eternal gospel, the ageless gospel from before time that will always be true. And I want you to take this with you tonight, even if you just take one. And what I want to challenge you to do 
is don't wait to do this. I learned a hard lesson about this. I'll share with you sometime where I was like, I'm going to write my name in this. I'm going to do all this stuff. And then I turned around and the person I was going to witness to was gone. Uh, So in the inside, it says this booklet was given to you by. Go ahead and fill it out. Fill it out. Write your name and write the name of your church. And if you're comfortable, maybe your email. I wouldn't put your phone number in it. Uh, But uh, go ahead and write it in there. And if, if nothing else, write connect at seafordbaptist.com if you don't want to put your email and take it with you. If you just take one, take one. Take two, three, whatever. Don't just take a handful, throw them in your purse and say maybe. Take one or two and say definitely. This is going to somebody. I don't know who, don't know when, don't know where, but this week God's going to show me somebody. I'm going to give this to him. Take it tonight and then pray and ask God for the opportunity. Um, he will bring it. He will give it and proclaim that same eternal gospel we see the angel proclaiming here in this passage. Father God, I thank you for my church family, and I thank you, Lord, for the gospel that's in their mouths. I pray, Father, that you would send us out with the same message we see being proclaimed by the angels here. Father, when when we proclaim the eternal gospel, I pray we would do it boldly and passionately. When we talk about the kingdom of man, I pray that we would uh, sincerely warn folks that they are in peril if they are trusting in Babylon. Uh, Father, when it comes to hell, I pray that we would plead through tears. That we wouldn't talk about the doctrine as if it's not a real place, as if it's not a horrible place. That we would plead through tears for souls to repent. And Father, when we talk about heaven, I pray that our hearts would leap and jump and we would not Again, talk about it in an abstract way. This doctrine we hope might be true. It's, it's our country. It's where we're going. It's our home. And we can't wait. So Lord, um, send us out to tell people, God. To tell people. Uh, the same way we have seen the angels telling them in this uh, passage tonight. The same way we see the Father and the Spirit speaking in this passage tonight. Lord, give us the gospel that we can speak and give uh, open hearts to those who would hear it. These gospel tracts, Lord, these two ways to live tracts we have in our hands, these little booklets, God, who would you have us give these to? Who would you have us explain these to, Father? Give us the opportunity to let people know uh, the greatest truth that we have ever learned, the greatest thing we could tell them, the only hope for their souls. Um, Lord, help us to be ambassadors for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.